Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood International Employment Group. Don't forget you can subscribe to the whole series of podcasts on iTunes or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Emily Ide, I'm a senior associate and I'm based in our Middle East office in Dubai. And I'm Paul Reeves, I'm an employment partner based in our London office. On 28th August 2019, a new employment law came into force in the DIFC, ushering in a plethora of changes to the existing regime. Emily and I are going to talk about a particular aspect of the new law that is probably going to have the biggest impact on the way that DIFC employers operate, particularly in the current political and regulatory climate. And that's the strengthening of discrimination protection for DIFC employees. Paul, I know you've been busy in recent years delivering training to clients for who behaviour in the workplace has really jumped to the top of their risk agenda. Yes, that's right, Emily. Since about late 2017, we had the Harvey Weinstein case and then uh, the Me Too movement. There's been a significant increase in this area. Spotlight really is on issues of harassment, particularly sexual harassment, in a work context. So what we're talking about here is not a new piece of legislation. It's something that has been around for many, many years. It's just that it has risen high up our clients' agendas. I've been helping a number of our clients to identify risks and potential liability that stems from their legal obligations to prevent work-related discriminatory conduct and harassment. Well, we'll be seeing the same here. Since the new law was introduced in the DIFC, employers really have begun to start taking stock of the policies they have in place, trying to update them and assess what other proactive steps they should be taking to limit their potential exposure to claims. I mean, no one wants to be the first employer in the DIFC to be on the end of a successful discrimination claim. So I think it'd be helpful for us to hear some of the tips you've been sharing on this topic. Thanks, Emily. I'm happy to share some of the key learning points that have arisen over the last couple of years. But I think it's worthwhile you just setting the scene and outline some of the discrimination laws under the new DIFC law. Because from what I understand, this new law takes some fairly significant steps to bring itself more into line with global standards on anti-discrimination legislation. Is that correct? That's right. So the new law gives real bite to and expands on the existing anti-discrimination framework. And quite similar to the regime under the UK's Equality Act, the DIFC employment law sets out a number of specific prohibited grounds on which employees are protected from being discriminated against. So on the existing regime, that included discrimination based on sex, marital status, race, nationality, religion and disability. And the new law has added two more to that. So we now have pregnancy and maternity as the first one, and then age. Okay, thanks very much. I noticed one glaring omission from that, which would be sexual orientation. Is that protected under the DIFC law? It's not. And and this is one of the questions that comes up fairly frequently from clients, particularly those with international operations. And that's just a reflection of the cultural sensitivities in the UAE. So... What types of discrimination are we dealing with under the DIFC law? Is it similar to the UK? It is. Uh, There are several categories. First of all, we have direct discrimination, which is where an employer treats an employee less favourably than another employee would be treated in those circumstances, or where that employee is put at a disadvantage that others don't face because of that prohibited ground. There is an exception when it comes to direct discrimination, however, in the case of age, in that the law actually excuses discriminatory treatment if it can be objectively justified, so typically in the case of service-related benefits. We then have indirect discrimination, which is where an employer applies a provision, criterion or practice, what we refer to as a PCP, generally, 
And that PCP is capable of putting certain employees with that prohibited, shall we say, characteristic at a disadvantage. And it does, in fact, disadvantage a particular employee. Now, indirect discrimination is excusable under the IFC if the employer can show that applying the PCP is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And the classic example is an employer requiring all employees to work full time. And of course, this requirement could disadvantage women as a group, given that generally women in society as a whole bear a greater part of the domestic and childcare responsibilities than men. And so are more likely to want or need to work part time. So unless an employer can objectively justify the need for the job to be done on a full time basis, then the requirement to work full time could in fact be indirectly discriminatory against a woman with childcare responsibilities. Then we have the failure to make reasonable adjustments as the third type of discrimination. And that means failing to make adjustments to a physical feature or a PCP that would, if the adjustment was made, enable an employee with a disability to perform their job. So typical example being if an employer has a policy where designated car parking spaces are only offered to senior managers and there's a worker who's not a manager but has a mobility impairment and they need to park close to the office, then it may well be a reasonable adjustment of that car parking policy to assign a designated parking space to that employee. Fourth, we have discrimination arising from disability, and that's where an employer treats an employee unfavourably because of something arising in consequence of that employee's disability and where that treatment can't be objectively justified. So a typical example being where an employer dismisses an employee who's had an extended period of sick leave, let's say two months, so they've exhausted their statutory 60 days leave under the DIFC employment law, and the reason for the absence is related to a disability, so say multiple sclerosis, for example. So in that case, the employer's decision to dismiss is not because of the worker's disability itself, as that would be direct discrimination, but the worker has been treated unfavourably because of something arising in consequence of their disability, namely the need to take related sick leave. And there's a new one. So we talked about changes brought in by the new law. We have a new type of discrimination recognised, which is victimisation. And those provisions protect employees who do protected acts. And that includes bringing a discrimination claim, giving evidence or information regarding discrimination proceedings, or making an allegation, whether it's implied or express, that their discrimination rights have been infringed. Essentially, it's protection from retaliation. So if an employee, for example, is dismissed or subjected to detrimental treatment because they do a protected act, like getting involved in another employee's discrimination complaint, then that would amount to unlawful victimisation. And last but not least, we have harassment, which is where a DIFC employer engages in unwanted treatment or conduct related to one of the prohibited grounds, which has the purpose or effect of creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive workplace for an employee or violates an employee's dignity. And I've saved this one to last because I think it's one we should focus on because I think there's so much scope for claims to be brought under this heading, particularly in the workplace. Absolutely, Emily. Harassment is the key issue and where we're seeing most of of the issues. And, And it's vital that line managers who are effectively the eyes and ears of the business, if they spot issues taking place within their team, they need to take action, whether that's formal action through disciplinary or informal action where a quiet word to remind people of the the behaviours. But ignoring the issue is not an option. Employers need to realise that this is not just linked to the conduct between employees. It may be with regard to clients and their behaviour towards 
employees, irrespective of the scenario, again, the employer is under a duty to take positive steps to protect their employees from such inappropriate behaviour. It's also worth noting that even a one-off incident can lead to liability. But thankfully, if the complaint is dealt with appropriately and promptly, then this shouldn't ultimately lead to a claim and the issue can be addressed. The fact that individuals quite often tell us, well, I didn't mean to cause offence, it was a joke, people joined in, is that going to be an excuse? The short answer is no, it won't be an excuse because you effectively, you take your victim as you find them. And if they are offended by either the email, the conversation or the joke, then it's your responsibility in that situation. So as a general rule, you do need to know your audience and that those that you are sharing, either a joke, an email, or you're engaging in some form of conversation, are not going to be offended by it. If there's a risk that someone would be offended, then our advice is don't do it. And what we're also seeing now with our clients is, particularly those that are in a regulatory environment, that their regulator is taking a a very keen interest in these cases and how they are dealt with. If you're in the financial services sector, the regulator in the UK has particularly made it clear that they treat such issues as very seriously and they expect to see companies dealing with any allegations of harassment, sexual or otherwise, dealt with promptly and they're not swept under the carpet where the individual who complains is paid off and the perpetrator is allowed to carry on with their career. The the, the rationale in all of this is that if companies don't take these issues seriously, then what other issues are the company failing to address? Or if individuals are in fear of raising these types of issues, then are they also in fear of raising other concerns, such as a whistleblowing complaint? So it's vitally important that we get this right in this particular area for a number of reasons. As we saw in the recent Freshfields case, this had an adverse impact on the, on the firm in terms of their, their, their name being in the press and associated with the case, but also because of the potential impact for the individual and, and their future regulatory status. The, the regulator is taking a very keen interest in this at the moment. It's an interesting point you raise, Paul, about regulators looking at non-financial conduct of individuals in financial services. And I'm sure the DFSA will be taking a similar approach. The issue is employees simply often don't appreciate the effect that the impact of what they think is a simple comment or banter in the workplace may have on fellow colleagues, but also on the liability of their employers. And this is something that's really going to matter for employers in the DIFC as well, because they can be found vicariously liable under the new law for any of the actions of their employees, if what they're doing is being done in the context of a workplace. And importantly, due to the changes introduced by the new law, there are going to be some serious financial consequences. So if a discrimination claim is well-founded in a DIFC, the courts will now have the power to order employers to pay compensation, and that could be at any level that a court considers reasonable, subject to a cap of annual wage, and that's everything, so including allowances. And there's an element of that compensation that may include reference to an individual's injury to feelings. Additionally, there may be administrative fines for up to $2,000 in relation to any breach of the employer's general duty to provide a workplace free from discrimination. There are a number of other remedies, such as a discrimination declaration, so confirming that the rights of the employee have been breached, and the court may make recommendations that an employer take certain steps to remove or alleviate the discriminatory effect or treatment And if the employer doesn't follow suit, 
then the court can increase any compensation order up to two years annual wage. And let's not forget, some or all of these behaviours could amount to criminal offences and incur criminal fines or imprisonment. So bearing that all in mind, what sorts of things should employers be doing to avoid that situation? Well, as I said, ideally you want to be able to deal with these issues on an informal basis, but sometimes that may not be possible and you have to take formal action. Either the individual raises a formal grievance and or you take disciplinary action against the individual. The key points are to ensure that individuals feel that the complaint is being taken seriously and it's not dismissed out of hand. Um, There needs to be a certain element of confidentiality when the complaint is raised, although we can't guarantee confidentiality throughout if we're going to do a fair investigation, and we should never be guaranteeing confidentiality. Sometimes we get individuals coming to us and saying, I'd like to tell you something, but I don't want you to do anything about it. That's not an option for you to not take any follow-up steps once the individual has told you. And I think the appropriate answer there is, well, if you want to tell me what the issue is, I'll then decide whether there are any follow-up steps to be taken. But the individual can't compel you once they've told you what the issue is that you take no action. Now, there are a number of ways that you can deal with the issue. You might take a kind of a watching brief over the behaviours. You don't necessarily have to go into some formal investigation. But doing nothing on receipt of a complaint is not an option. Secondly, remember, harassment is subjective, as we said. A one-off complaint can amount to a claim. But if dealt properly, it shouldn't. Keep an open mind as to what may or may not have happened And consider if there are any interim steps you can take while you observe or investigate the matter. This may be reallocation of an individual amongst a different team, but think broadly as to how we can manage this and keep the complainant on side. They may have some views as to how they want the issue dealt with, and to the extent that these remain reasonable, they should be taken on board. So what else should we be doing? This is a top-down approach, so we need senior management buy-in. It's no point individuals at a more junior level adhering to your established policies if senior management don't take it seriously or dismiss the the, the policies as some form of lip service to the current climate. It should never be seen as lip service and your approach to this is not just a box ticking exercise. As you've rightly said Emily, no one wants to be the next headline or certainly in the DIFC the first headline. So there's plenty at stake and therefore it's relevant for employers to take a tough stance with this no to ensure that they are not the next or the first headline. Demonstrating high ethical standards is vitally important with regard to retention, recruitment of staff. It puts you at a competitive advantage if you can show that you have a great working environment where inappropriate behaviour is not tolerated. Also, we've seen with some examples in the UK where inappropriate behaviour has had an adverse impact on the company with regard to clients wanting to distance themselves from organisations where bad behaviour has been tolerated or has taken place. So what do we do? We lead by example. We encourage and enable people to speak up in a safe environment. Make sure we have correct policies in place. As I've said, not lip service or box ticking. Create the right culture and deal with issues promptly and effectively. Don't ignore or brush them aside. And as you've as we already talked about, be very mindful if you're in a regulatory environment that there is a greater spotlight on you by your regulator as to how you deal with these issues. It's important to keep accurate records, but be mindful of your data protection obligations and also your obligations with regard to disclosure if the matter does litigate. And finally, I'd encourage all clients to start training their staff 
from top down with regard to what is and isn't appropriate office behaviour. And this is something that isn't just done on a one-off basis. It's something that you need to keep refreshing on an interim basis around about every 12 to 18 months. Thanks, Paul. That's some really useful practical advice. A lot there for DIFC employers to be working on. Bearing that in mind, what would you say are the key takeaways? I think some of the key takeaways are just be wary that where banter or flirtation crosses the line. Be mindful of the tone and the content of email, language differences, cultural differences. If we're working in an international business, then having a standard which everyone adheres to, raising the bar to the highest common denominator is the right approach. It's not okay to say that everyone else does it or joins in. We've got to really question, are those individuals freely joining in, particularly where there may be peer pressure or there's a seniority discrepancy? Be mindful of the consequences. Um, This can have not only on staff, but on your um, profile generally and, and how clients will view your approach to this. And finally, one thing that this, this area of law is, is, is not aimed at is ensuring that there is no banter, no jokes or humour within the workplace. It's something that is very subjective and you need to be mindful of it. But no, we're not the, uh, the no-fun beliefs. Finally, just some policy tips. I'd urge all clients to implement an equal opportunities policy if you don't have one already. Training, as I've said, but in conscious and subconscious bias. Creating a safe area where people can speak up. Recognition of protected acts and the need for independent decision makers. Document reasons for decision making. There have been quite a few cases in the UK where behaviour has been inferred because of the lack of documentation or an audit process, particularly when it comes to pay and bonuses. And, And as we've already touched on, regular training for all employees, particularly Um, senior management because they set the tone in this area. Thanks very much, Paul. I found that thoroughly enlightening, as I hope DIFC employers will do. There's certainly a lot there and, and we'll have to try and resist the urge to avoid all interactions with colleagues. That's all we have time for today. That's the end of this podcast, but there are more and you can subscribe to the whole series of employment podcasts on iTunes or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. 